Rich Kimbrell. And I'm Craig Combs. And this is episode 10. Can you believe it, Craig? 10 episodes know. in. Amazing. I didn't say 10 good episodes, no. but 10 episodes. Well, we're still looking for a good one. Yeah, that's right. Maybe it'll be this Could one. be today. Could be. Not likely, but it could be. Let's hope springs eternal. Yeah. So we are recording today episode 10 of From Dan to Beersheba, which is a theological podcast from Christ Memorial Church in Williston, Vermont, where I am senior pastor and Craig is associate pastor for education. And what is it that we're talking about when we are recording these From Dan to Beersheba podcast, Craig? When people say, what in the world, <laughs> why are you telling me about a podcast that has just about the most laborious name I can imagine? Uh, obscure, yeah. It's because uh, we're never sure from time to time what it's going to be about. It's all over the map, which is what Dan de Beersheba stands for. Well, today we're hoping that where we are on the map is talking about Reformed theology. What is Reformed theology? And uh, it's not at all uncommon to hear somebody say, well, I'm Reformed, or, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a fella, I'm a lady who holds to Reformed theology, but we're trying to answer today, or begin to answer, um, what is it that we're saying <laughs> when we say that? Because I'm suspicious that not everybody who says I'm Reformed really knows what it is they're saying when, when they say that. I think that's fair, Mitch. You know, it is always the case with a question like that is that it depends on who you ask. Uh, because people say, I'm Reformed, and they mean something, but we shouldn't assume that they all mean the same thing, because people use words differently sometimes. Some people would say, I'm Reformed, and, and they would make that synonymous with being a Calvinist. That's another term that gets thrown around. That's right, yeah. Calvinist. Um, you know, it's it's hard to know how to reach out, how far out to reach and how far back to reach to get our arms around this topic. But there's a book that I was. And, and, uh, pardon the interruption. You may you may get to this, but it occurs as we're kind of laying the groundwork here. You know, Christ Memorial Church is a Baptist church, and so you know we would say we're Reformed Baptist, which in the minds of some is a contradiction in terms. Well, absolutely, and it doesn't say Reformed anywhere in our doctrinal statement, and it's not in the title of our church. No, and and in fact we. Uh, I don't mind saying we we take great pains. I try to lead our church in not having reformed theology or some some doctrine or or uh, you know some uh, disposition toward doctrine to be our banner. We want the gospel to be our banner. So That's we don't right. we don't want the first thing people know about Christ Memorial Church. It's not as though we're trying to hide it, but it's not what we get out of the bed in the morning for. Yeah, in fact. One might say we're Reformed because we are serious about the gospel, and it turns out that Reformed theology, some aspects of Reformed theology, appear to be the best read on what the Bible teaches about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, so so we're Reformed not for the sake of it, but because we think that's where the Bible's led us. That's that's exactly right. I was, I was helped uh, by a book. Uh, a clear uh, collection of essays edited by David Wells called Reformed Theology in America. Uh, I'm not blaming any of my views on that book, but in the introduction, the historian George Marsden uh, 
did a little summary, and he he proposed that in America there are broadly three types of groups that would all identify as reformed in some way, but they're not all the same. And these are sort of his categories, but they're useful, I think. He talked about the Orthodox Presbyterian types where doctrinal rightness, doctrinal orthodoxy is the most important thing. And then he talks about a different strand out of history, the Christian Reformed Church types of Christians, where um, one of the most important things is the relationship of the church to the culture and its transformative aspect uh, and, and the insistence on a Christian world and life view. Um, and then there's more broadly just evangelicals in America who it, it turns out the, that a Reformed understanding of the doctrine of salvation has been most influential amongst those that call themselves evangelicals. And there are different educational institutions that might more or less represent those, those branches. But how are we supposed to understand these terms of being Reformed or being Calvinist? Well, you know, you, you have to ask the question, Reformed from what? Uh, that's what the idea of Reformed means. So you have to go back to the Protestant Reformation. I think that starting point is important. And, of course, we don't have time this morning to pretend that we know a lot about church history. But in, <laughs> and that would be what it is. It's pretense, pretending. Yes, yeah, that's yes. right. But in the first sense, to be reformed is to be reformed as over against being a Roman Catholic. Uh, we're talking about the Protestant Reformation that was led up to for 150 years by a lot of forerunners, but we mostly peg it to Martin Luther uh, breaking the dam that let the water out and a bunch of men who followed. Uh, as uh, in 1517, 1517, October 31st, yep. uh, that's kind of the the easy way to think about the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Yeah. Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door of the city church in Wittenberg. And that's all that. right. Yeah. So here's Luther, and he's observing what he considers to be abuses and immorality in the church. He's He's observing what he believes to be greed and worldliness and a loss of gospel clarity because Luther himself had lived without the gospel in his early days as a monk, and God was gracious to reveal the gospel to him. As, and this all happened in the context of the scriptures only recently being rediscovered during the Renaissance as Language and literature were getting a second wind after a very dark time. And so Luther, it's not fair to say that he started the whole thing, but Luther and those who came after began trying to change the church through their writings and teachings. They wanted to reform the church to make it conform better to uh, the scriptures and better to a true gospel. And so they... They wanted to be reformers, but of course, as it turned out, the church called them protesters, and that's why we get the term Protestant. Protestant. They're protesting against that's the, right. the Roman Catholic Church, and they're, well, they were initially seeking to reform the Roman Catholic Church. Exactly. Uh, Luther would have been happy to 
remain a Roman Catholic, but to see the doctrine of the church come more in line with the scriptures. That's there, right. And therein concludes our etymological lesson for that. <laughs> That's right. Well, so these guys, Luther and others, were eventually uh, unable to reform the church, and they were thrown out. And so their expulsion, you could say, well, they left the church, or the church left them. Any way you want to slice it, uh, they ended up deciding that based on what it was teaching, that the Roman church wasn't really the true church. So to be reformed in the first instance is to not be a Roman Catholic. But then as church history unfolded, as soon as there was this group more or less identified as the reformed, they didn't agree on everything. And the first big divide that erupted right after that would be between the reformed and the Lutheran. So, you know, here's Luther getting things started but there are some other men who came along, and there was a difference in their understanding of things that the Bible taught. And so um, they, they mostly had important things in common. They, they believed in salvation that's by grace through faith, both Lutheran and Reformed. But they began to differ, I would say primarily the difference was on the sacraments, the Lord's table and uh, baptism and what, how those are used and what they mean and what happens when you use them. So they, they differed on that. Now, both differed from Rome on those doctrines, but they Again, also— Again, both meaning what's come to be referred to as Reformed, Reformed and Lutheran. and Lutheran, yes, yeah. yes. So, because from a very early time now, as Christians are wont to do— you're beginning to have division. So the first division is the Reformed guys from the Roman Catholic Church. Now it's a division among the Reformed guys between Lutherans and sort of non-Lutherans. Yes, that's right. Lutherans and non-Lutherans who were typically called Reformed, which is doesn't mean that the Lutherans aren't also Reformed as over against Rome. Um, so, um, uh, you know, Rome had a doctrine of baptism that insisted that the waters of baptism removes original sin from the baby. Um, Luther had a view of baptism that faith was somehow required, but that it does, in fact, forgive all your sins, not just original sin. And the Reformed were teaching that this is a sign of your inclusion in God's covenant, not a sign of you having had your sins forgiven yet. It's still in anticipation of faith when your sins will be forgiven by grace. So they differed on that. And and we talked about sacraments a little bit in one of our podcasts. You can go back and listen to that. Because there's been even yet more division between <laughs> among those who are the non-Lutheran reform types, your Presbyterians and your, your Baptists, among others. So That's right. this is a... None of these are, are monolithic. You give any Christians enough time and we'll... We'll start find to... something to divide them. Yeah, that's, that's right. Exactly right. And I need to talk to you about a couple of things that I don't agree with, Mitch. By the way, well, I'll get you set straight. We'll <laughs> we'll do that off off mic. So the same was true between the Lutherans and the Reformed with respect to the Lord's table. Both rejected the Roman Catholic idea that the bot, the bread and the wine become the body and blood of Christ through a miraculous transformation. But Luther was a lot closer to that than the rest of the Reformed appreciated. Um, he wanted to say somehow that the true body and blood of Christ are present with the bread and with the wine, 
though the bread and the wine are also still bread and wine. Yeah, the the phrase that gets used is in, with, and under. That's right. Uh, the, 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 the bread and the wine. The body of Christ is in, with, and under the bread and That's the right. wine. So uh, the most, I think, generous thing you can say about the Lutheran view of the table is that it's not Roman Catholicism's transubstantiation. But that's about all you can say. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and it may just be a distinction without a difference. It, it may be. Uh, a good Lutheran would tell you that it's a huge difference. Of course. <laughs> to be fair. But, well, the Reformed were more unified in their notion that uh, this table is a covenantal sign. It's, it's a means of grace that's tied to the Word of God. But it's not saving you by, its, by your use of it. God is the one doing the saving. Um, other differences proceeded the, because other men wanted to take the Reformation further, and they've been called the Radical Reformers and others. Uh, various Baptist groups could be plugged in there somewhere. And, you and know, one day we'll do Baptist history, but among those groups were the, the Anabaptists, and uh, some have thought that... Um, that that you know we here at Christ Memorial Church uh, descend from the Anabaptists. I would take issue with that kind of thing. That's fair because um, the Anabaptists got up to a lot of shenanigans that I don't want to have anything to do with. Yes, yes, that's an episode for another time. That's another time. That's another time. So, but the the question, throwing all that very very simplified history on the table, still we have to ask: What are we talking about? in terms of beliefs, if someone's calling himself Reformed. And there is some consensus uh, among most Reformed people that you can summarize the important doctrines of the Reformation in five, what's been called the five solas, which is just Latin for alone. Or if you really want to get Latinized, the five sole. Oh, well, there you go. There you go. I take it. From the master of words. <laughs> so the five solas being uh, uh, sola gratia, or grace alone, which stands for uh, salvation is, from, is, is of God from first to last. It's God's grace alone that results in salvation. And the second, the second sola uh, being faith alone. And that, that means that the way God's grace brings salvation to us is through the instrument of faith. Faith lays hold of the grace that's being offered because faith lays hold of Jesus Christ. And one of the distinctions between the Reformed and the Roman Catholicism from which it wanted to distinguish itself was not conceiving of grace as though it were a substance to be somehow be ingested or found or, or connected or with. added to or added to you get you have this amount of grace but if you do this you have yet more grace yes the the, the reformers were understanding grace to be God's favorable disposition his determination to be kind and generous and offer something freely so grace alone stands for salvation as a free gift from God that's not earned or merited in any way. And faith alone 
actually reiterates or reemphasizes grace alone because it says the only way you get this gift is by believing God's offer of the gospel, by relying on Jesus Christ and what he has done. So if you add anything at all to faith, the Reformers would have agreed, you've actually introduced works salvation. That's why they said faith alone. You know, the Roman Catholic Church, in response to that articulation, was very clear. You can't say faith alone. We're happy to say salvation is by grace through faith, but we're not happy to say it's by it's salvation by grace through faith alone. And that was codified in the Council of Trent, which is the Roman Catholic response to the Protestant Reformation. And those those anathema, those damnings, those curses remain in place in Roman Catholic dogma. And they pronounce anathema on those who would hold to salvation by grace through faith alone. Alone, that yes. remains Roman Catholic dogma to the present day. It really does, and it's 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 a point worth pondering a little bit. Why why it would matter so much to say faith alone as over against faith? To be fair to the Roman Catholics, what they were jealous for in part was not allowing a formulation of salvation that sounds as if you can get saved and then you can live any way you want to. And and if you say it's faith alone, all you have to do, they surmised, is believe and then go do whatever you want because believing is all you have to do. And the Reformers were never saying that, but they were saying that the believing alone is what lays hold of Christ and all his saving work because the Catholic system was, the Roman Catholic system was and still is, a system of merit, of earning. So the Roman Catholic formulation was that you you get initiated into God's grace through your baptism, and then you grow in it, eating and drinking more grace through the sacraments, and you start to do good works that merit more favor, and you're piling up your merits until the point comes when you can finally be accepted by God because enough merit has accrued to your case. And it puts a lot of emphasis on the merits of Christ, but it's not the merits of Christ alone. alone. It's the merit of the saints. It's your merit, and, and it's the merits of Christ, but, but as a slice of the overall pie. Yes. Maybe the largest slice, but it's not the whole pie. And that's where the Protestant re- uh, reformers would say, you've lost the scriptures. Yes, because the... The reformers would say that if you introduce even a whiff of yeah. your own merit, you have introduced works righteousness and not righteousness as a free gift. And it, it, it bears repeating that the Protestant reformers believe this uh, because we understand this to be what the scriptures teach. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, there's so many passages, but... Obviously, Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one may boast. And that phrase, not as the result of works, 
is is a an important foundational point for reformation doctrine of salvation it's grace alone it's faith alone otherwise it has to be of works the book of romans paints it the same way uh that if if it isn't all of god's doing it is of works and you have to pick between a salvation that is of works or is all of god's doing and and so the reformers were clear on that whatever differences they may have had they were clear on grace alone and faith alone as the essence of, of, of salvation and how you get salvation. Yeah, you can believe a lot of different things and still be under the Reformed umbrella. You cannot deny any of these five sole and say you're Reformed. That's and, right. and so the first one is grace alone. The second is faith alone. Faith as an instrument, a gift from God, Ephesians 2, that lay lays hold of God's grace to us through Christ. And so let's keep going with these five sole. Well, the third one is uh, right in there with the first two. It's Christ alone in solo Christo or solus Christus, uh, Christ alone. And the idea is that salvation is found in Christ and in no other. And for them, that meant no additional merits are to be applied or can be applied. Or can be applied. That's right. Who could add to what Christ has done? Yes. Yes. So you can see how it's a necessary implication of grace alone and faith alone. It's got it. It's Christ alone. Those three require each other. None of them can be conceived of really in independence from the other two. Yeah. Just because they exist in a list doesn't mean they're at all separate. They all if one falls, they all fall. That is that is correct, because you're really describing a system of salvation that, yeah. if you want to sum it up, has to be called the grace system. Yeah. The grace system. Um, so Christ alone, that seems, that seems to need no further explanation, but anything that, that has the odor of personal works and personal earning is a denial of Christ alone, as though something else could uh, effect effect salvation, and the fourth sola is the one uh, that we call uh, uh, well, sola scriptura. Sola scriptura, Scripture alone, and in, it's interesting that in the Reformation, uh, what the historians and even the, I think the people of the day called the the material principle was the answer to the question how is a person right with god and and that's bound up in and the reason they called it the material principle is another way of saying what here's the bottom line question that we're seeking to answer yeah here's the essence here's the substance here's what we're really talking about how can a person be saved how can a man be right with god Uh, that's the question that needs answering and of course that question the answer to that question is all bound up in those first three solas which is grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. But it turns out there was a question that logically and historically was prior to the material principle. And they called it the formal principle. And and the reason they called it that was because it was a question, the answer to which would determine how you could answer the other question. The question, the question, the, the formal uh, the formal question of the Reformation was, 
who speaks for God? Because <laughs> we're asking, how is a man saved? The obvious answer is, however God says he's saved. Well, who's who gets telling to it? say that? Who gets to say that? So they were coming at the doctrine of the church at the time that had evolved in a very unhelpful way. The church began accepting the scriptures as the word of God, and the church has never stopped accepting the holy scriptures as the word of God. <clears throat> but the church also placed such reverence on the traditions, the teachings of the church, that it elevated those traditions alongside of the Bible. So the traditions would have been seen to have been derived originally from the Bible. So the Bible as authoritatively taught by the church. And, and the church does theology and, and articulates some doctrine. But over time, when you add those articulated things up, you compile them in a list and you say, this tradition is as much from God as the Bible is. And now you've made a mistake. The Reformers said, no, only the Scriptures are the Word of God. Therefore, only the Scriptures have the final authority, the final authoritative say. And the church had evolved to the place where it said, no, the church has the final say, namely the head of the church, namely the, the pontiff, the pope, the man at the top, who unfailingly interprets both the Bible and the tradition, and that's the place Rome had gotten to by the those mid the fifteenth century, and where they remain today, and where they actually remain today. And so the reformers came along and said, tradition is not on a par with scripture. Men are fallible. Only the Bible is infallible. Now somebody might step back from that and say, well, then an infallible Bible with fallible people seems like that's a hopeless. A hopeless scenario, but we don't think that it is because we think God is well able sufficiently to lead his people into the truth of the scriptures. But the scriptures give us an objective record that's not subject to whim. Uh, and so we're not we're we're protected from embracing the teachings of men as though they were the word of God. Everything that we teach and preach needs to be in conformity to the scriptures, derived from the scriptures and subject to uh, correction by the scriptures. And that's what the reformers were jealous for. So they said, it's the Bible alone. And that was, you know, it's old Martin Luther. He, he nailed his 95 theses to the wall, and they, they argued about it, and they were ready to kill him for his views. But he said, brothers, you know, unless I can be persuaded by the plain teaching of the Bible, I'm not going to change my mind. And here I stand, and I can't do anything else. That's yeah. a paraphrase of Luther. Yeah, um, and 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 so and, and just to to continue down that thread, Luther had a great many wonderful things to say about the Word of God. But when people were wanting to give him so much credit for the good work that had happened in the church in the Protestant Reformation. Uh, he said, I slept, I drank Wittenberg beer, and the word did the work. That's uh, right. And he's, he's talking about the uh, God using using the word. Mm, that's why I like Luther so much. <laughs> uh, there's things not to like about any any human, but there's a lot to appreciate about old Martin Luther. So we've got grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, 
as taught by the scriptures alone. That's the authoritative version. Uh, and the final thing is really kind of a an umbrella, a summary of the others. Uh, it's And it was called Soli Deo Gloria, or to the glory of God alone. Some have said, to God alone be the glory, however you want to translate. Both are true. Both are true, that's right. And the, so I, just to interrupt, sometimes you, you might encounter someone who signs an email, SDG. Yeah. Or maybe you've heard that Johann Sebastian Bach would put SDG um, on the pieces of music he composed. When someone's doing that, that's an abbreviation for the Latin, soli deo gloria, to the right. glory of God alone. Yes, yes. And so the glory of God alone was was an umbrella category, a summary, really, of what the Reformers were after in wanting to change the church because it it, it supports or explains all the other solas, that whatever God does in redemption is for his own glory. It's to display and magnify his greatness. It's to lift up and cause the Lord Jesus Christ to be praised. It's it's for the exaltation of God the Father. It's understanding the work of the Holy Spirit as glorifying Jesus Christ. It's understanding all of it as being to the praise and honor and glory of God. So that's why it's grace alone, because that way God alone gets the glory. And that's why it's faith alone. Since faith contributes nothing, faith only lays hold of what's out there. And is itself a gift from God. And is itself a gift from God. Therefore, God gets all the glory in a faith alone category. And Christ alone, he is the gift of God to us. He is God in the flesh. And and his work is for the glory of God alone. And the scriptures alone, we confess that the Bible is the very word of God. As uh, Paul writes, breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's his very word. So he gets the glory for everything he has said. And, uh, and all that summed up together, I think, encapsulates what a lot of people mean by saying, I'm reformed. Uh, I would say in America, that also summarizes what anybody who would call himself historically an evangelical, uh, according to American church history, going back to the 19, oh, at least the 50s, perhaps a little earlier, uh, you know, the whole Billy Graham, Carl F.H. Henry, J. Gresham Machen, and those guys, this would be the common ground that evangelicals could stand on, defending a true evangel or a true gospel, which has these points as its undergirding. Yeah, again, I, I, I repeat that you can believe different things and still fairly call yourself Reformed. You cannot call yourself Reformed if you don't believe any of these five points and, and don't believe all of them. And I think they even bear memorizing. One little way that I've found them easy to memorize and that holds them all together as they ought to be is we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. That's what and I'm and uh, to our listeners, I would say you'd do well to commit these five sole to memory. And if someone ever asked, what does the Bible teach about how a person is made right with God, you can say, well, the Bible teaches that man is saved 
I was saved, if you belong to Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. That is, uh, that certainly is a, among the essentials of what we're talking about when we say what is Reformed theology. Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. And we could just close in prayer there, but there's a little more that people mean today. And we get paid by the hour for this podcast. <laughs> exactly. So I'm not interested in making a half. The mirror's rate. running. Yeah, let's, that's uh, right. Let's cash in. Um, if, if reformed means I'm reformed, I'm not a Roman Catholic. Uh, it also, in today's parlance, means I'm reformed, I'm not an Arminian. And so that refers back. So they're not from Armenia. Is that yeah. what you're saying? <laughs> no, that is not what I'm oh, saying. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I was confused. Uh, you might be an Armenian Christian. You might be an Armenian Armenian. You might. But you could be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you could be, and hopefully are, a reformed Armenian if yes. you are from Armenia. Yes. Armenia is a place, and Arminius is a person. That's right. Um, so we're talking about now the 17th century, the 1600s. Um, in the Dutch Reformed churches, uh, this fellow named Arminius uh, began speculating on some theology and doing some teaching that was contrary to the, the broadly Calvinist teaching that was taking place. Now, when we call teaching Calvinist, we're not really saying that John Calvin started a movement. It's just that the movement that grew up in Reformed theology tended to use John Calvin's name. By the time of this um, this issue with Arminius, Calvin is dead for 40 years, 40-plus yeah. years. Yeah, it's just that, that those who were opposed to Arminius or uh, who he was reacting to tend to look back to Calvin's Institutes as a good summary of what the Bible teaches that's about right. these things. As indeed they are. Yes, as they remain. Yeah, <laughs> as they right. remain, as they remain. So um, there was a faction around the year 1610. Uh, they were called the Remonstrants. You can do the etymology on remonstrance. They remonstrate. <laughs> that's right. Are you they blown away by my brilliance? <laughs> the remonstrators. Thanks for clearing that up, Mitch. They monstrate again. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, uh, Arminius in his writings and this faction that grew up following Arminius in his writings eventually published something called the Articles of Remonstrance. So let me let me just hit the pause button. Uh, timelines can... Are, are sort of helpful for me. Hopefully they are for the listeners. So we're talking about this happening in the second decade of the 17th century, the 1600s. So we're talking about roughly a hundred years after Martin Luther nails his theses to the door of the Wittenberg church. So that's, that's fair. You know, uh, John Calvin comes along in the second half of the, uh, the 16th century, the 1500s writes his institutes. He dies in 1564. So now we're talking um, you know, some 50 years after Calvin's death uh, is, is, is what's going on here. Yeah, that's fair. That's good. That's helpful context. <clears throat> well, uh, these articles of remonstrance were ways in which they disagreed with the predominant Calvinist teaching. And, uh, and, and here's a summary of what those articles were. There were five of them. Uh, one was an article 
concerning election, God choosing who's going to be saved. And and their their teaching was of there being a conditional election. And what that means is everybody agrees that faith is the, let's call it a condition for salvation. We've already cleared up that sola fide, faith alone, means faith doesn't add anything. It just lays hold of something. But <clears throat> nevertheless, these... Uh, these articles were teaching that what God did was he didn't choose in advance. He didn't elect certain sinners to save, but he looked through the corridors of time and saw who was going to believe. And based upon his foreknowing or foreseeing, seeing in advance who the believers are, he chose the believers. So believers are elect in the sense, according to Arminius, according to the Articles of Remonstrance, elect in the sense that their faith that was going to happen was seen, and therefore on that basis they were chosen. That's the condition of their being chosen. Now, so let me just, before we move on, sometimes the the topic of election gets attributed only to one camp in Christendom. So it's Calvinists who believe in election, some, right. some people say. And I want to say, no, election's a Bible word. So every Christian believes in election. But is it an unconditional election, which we'll get to in just a minute, or is it this Arminian conditional election? You're elect yes. based on the fact that God saw into the future that you yes. would repent and believe the gospel. Yes. That's so, a helpful clarification, Mitch, because you're right. Election is a Bible doctrine. No one can refute that it exists. They can only debate what it means. Right. So uh, that's, that's a good reminder. Well, a second article that goes along with this conditional election uh, is what they called an unlimited atonement. Now, when we say atonement, it's a reference to the death of Christ that pays for sin. That atones that, for man's that sin. atones for man's sin. And so the, uh, the remonstrance, the, Ar- the Arminian remonstrance, saw the atonement of Christ as that accomplishment that authorizes God. It's God's accomplishment, but it, it, it's the warrant for God to offer salvation, to offer life freely to all that on the basis of Christ having died in an unlimited capacity, God can now offer life to all. That's what they mean by unlimited. It's the scope of this atoning work is for every person everywhere, every individual everywhere. And it's on the basis of that work that God can then offer the gospel freely to the whole world. That actually sounds pretty good, but let's put a pin in it. That's what the remonstrance taught. And those uh, with whom I've been familiar in my life who hold to that belief like that it ostensibly provides you the opportunity to say to every person you evangelize, Jesus died for you, which, again, sounds very good. It does. Uh, but, but we'll get back to why it may not be what yeah. the Bible teaches. It's not what the Reformed believe. <laughs> Um, so it's not what the Bible teaches, but let's, we'll put a pin in it. Let's just walk through the articles of the remonstrance. The third one 
was they was on depravity, and they did teach what they call total depravity. Um, so you think, well, okay, that sounds right. Nobody disagrees with that, but that is linked in with the the next article. But depravity has to do with man's fallen condition, and the total in total depravity has never meant that every person is as bad as he could be. The total means that every part of the person is touched and tainted and stained with sin. There's nothing left unstained about the man. So the uh, the remonstrants agreed in a, de- a, a, a depravity that they call total, but there's a huge caveat that kind of undoes it, and that's in the fourth article, which was called Prevenient Grace. Um, so you can take the word prevenient, and you could kind of almost figure out what it means, but it has to do with a grace that comes from God that goes first before anything else happens. Prevenient grace. So this is grace that is necessary. On account of depravity, God has to do something by grace, and he has to go first or nothing else could happen. And that part of it is right. Right. That part is right. On account of depravity, if God doesn't go first, nothing could happen. A totally depraved sinner could never improve himself. He could never help himself. He could never reach out to get something. Even if you laid it out in front of him, like a corpse, if you laid out a meal, he wouldn't be eating from it because he's dead. But prevenient grace is God going first. But here's the, here's the hook. This Arminian teaching is that God gives prevenient grace to everyone. God goes first for everyone, including those who remain lost. God has given them his prevenient grace. And so on that basis, their depravity has been mitigated enough that they can then use their free will to lay hold of what God is offering. Yeah, and so just to reiterate where we are, the Arminians would hold that Jesus died on the cross for everyone, and they would hold that God has this prevenient grace for everyone. And again, that all, if you just cross-stitch it on a pillow, that looks very nice. It looks like something you'd want to hold to, except that as we're going to get to, it doesn't seem the Bible teaches it. It doesn't seem the Bible teaches that. So that's the setup, though. God has chosen the people that he has seen are going to believe. Jesus has died for everybody, and God has given grace that goes first to all these totally depraved people. So now they're in a position to freely choose what Jesus offers if they want to. Uh, And then the final article of remonstrance is that um, is what's called conditional preservation of the saints. That's one way of saying it. Uh, Faith becomes a condition that the saints continue to need to meet and to provide. You have to keep, you have to maintain the duty of faith and If you don't maintain the duty of faith, well, you can still fall away and not be preserved and finally be lost. So you can truly be a Christian 
who has freely chosen what God has universally offered. But if you don't keep it up, you fall away. So now you can begin to see how this whole thing smells like the aroma of a works Works. righteousness. Once again, it's finally really up to you. God has done in this formulation everything he can do to get you saved. But you have to do the important part. You have to use your free will to reach out for Christ. And you have to use your faith to stay in Christ. And if you don't, it all slips away. So so uh, just a little biography. As I grew up, I heard this. Now, I don't think I any of the people who I heard preach or, or, or teach in this way knew anything about the doctrine. I don't think they had any of this doctrinal history. I don't think they knew what camp they belonged to. But I would nevertheless hear the influence of this articulated by people who would speak to us as teenagers and say, look, you know, all the time you're having commercials that say to you, pick Coke or pick Pepsi, but the choice is up to you. Well, that's kind of what salvation's like. You pick God or you pick the devil, but the choice is up to you. Um, God wants you and Satan wants you. Who's going to get you? And uh, still, it's very, it's very man-centered. It makes you pretty important in the mix, doesn't it? It makes you the most important. Because God's trying his darndest to get a hold of you. but He's done everything. He's killed his son, and he's done this prevenient grace, but it remains up to you finally. It's up to you. Well, and I, So just to help, help our listeners, so there are a couple of big denominations that are, at least according to their doctrinal standards, Arminian. So yes. one of them is the United Methodist Church. Yes. The, the, and anything that kind of descends from the Wesley brothers is Arminian, um, despite the fact that uh, Charles wrote, and can it be, which isn't at all Arminian, it seems. <laughs> um, uh, but, but Wesleyan theology is Arminian. And then there are some sects of Baptists that are Arminian, like the Free Will Baptists. Um, and and so there it is right yeah, in the name, yeah, isn't it? That's right. And so uh, I, I taught a Free Will Baptist young man when I was in uh, a seminary instructor, and uh, and I suppose to his credit, if you want to say that, he, he did hold to these things, including the ability to lose your salvation to apostatize. Now, what isn't clear, Craig, and maybe you can help help me clear this up, is there a uh, is there kind of a predominant opinion among those who think a Christian can apostatize, walk away from the faith, lose his or her salvation? That you can do that more than once, or is that kind of a one and done sort of thing? Well, I think the ones that hold more closely to the scriptures are kind of forced to say it's a one, one and, and done. Because like you Hebrews got some, six. Yeah it's, yeah, it's hard to get around that. But I think that as a theological construct it could theoretically happen more than once. Yeah. Uh, it and, seems in practice that they, they allow for coming back and forth. Coming back and forth seems in practice to be how that's interpreted. And I want to just say one more thing about that business of losing your salvation. It is understood by Arminians who hold to these articles of remonstrance. It is understood that the faith that one person has who then falls away is exactly the same as the faith that another person has who doesn't fall away. The only difference between those two is the duration. One was a faith that lasted, and one was a faith that didn't last. But otherwise, it's exactly the same. Now, that might sound like, well, that's that sounds fair, level playing field, but there's an implication of that. 
because that means that they're saying that the person who fell away had truly laid hold of Christ, had truly received the Holy Spirit as a consequence of believing on Christ, had truly been born again. All those things are necessary implications of having the same kind of faith that the the true believer has and still fell away. So that's a very sinister idea. Uh, and it clearly puts man in the driver's seat and puts an onus of responsibility on man to do what it seems impossible for a man to do. Yeah, so according to the Articles of Remonstrance, if a person actually holds to this teaching, um, you would not say about someone who walks away from the faith, well, I guess it turns out their faith wasn't genuine to begin with. You would say, no, it was always genuine. It was right. always real, and they nevertheless walked away. Right. That's what you'd have to say if you held to these articles. Well, these articles uh, called for the church, the Dutch church, the Reformed brothers in that area to uh, convene a council. They met in the city of Dordrecht in the Netherlands, and they produced a document that has come to be referred to as the canons of Dordrecht, or we usually abbreviate, even in their writings, they abbreviated Dordrecht. I'm probably saying that wrong, but Dordrecht as Dort. I want to hear you say it several more times. Thank though. you. <laughs> Dort, D-O-R-D-T. There may period. be some people listening who are expecting children. If you find you have a son, although I suppose it could be a, a boy or a yeah. girl's name, Dordrecht, put that on your short uh, That's list, a beautiful you? name. It's a beautiful yes. name. Yes. And uh, first name, Cannon. Uh, now that's not Cannon bad. Dordrecht. I you like know, that. Sarah and I, we'll get to why this would be important later on. Uh when Sarah and I were expecting, well, she's she really was doing the heavy lifting you were yeah, expecting, yeah, which yeah. she was expecting. Um, so we have two girls and two boys, but um, we had already decided the the girls' names before I thought about this. But when we were expecting what turned out to be our boys, I thought if it was a girl, a lovely name would be Geneva. Ah, Geneva. Nice. Yeah. You know, that's where Calvin, of course, I, had sure. had had uh, the most of his ministry. Name. Yeah. But anyway, Geneva, Geneva. Dordrecht, whatever you yeah. like. Yeah, Dordrecht, Geneva, that's a good point. These podcasts uh, can help with baby names. Not they, many people knew that. <laughs> that's exactly right. Okay. So, um, the, <laughs> that was another, I designed that as another coffee break, you see. <laughs> good job. Okay. Um, so, the, uh, this synod of Dort met, and they came out with a document that contained five heads of doctrine, and they were more or less aligned to address the the five articles of remonstrance. That's how it, that's how that goes. Uh, two of them were kind of combined into one, and you can see how that works. Uh, but the five heads of doctrine were the first head of doctrine had to do with predestination. The second head of doctrine had to do with uh, the death of Christ and redemption. The third and fourth together had to do with the corruption of man and the conversion of man. And those are intertwined. And then the fifth head had to do with perseverance. And it is from those uh, heads of doctrine and from this document, the canons of Dort, that has evolved the acrostic that today is often synonymous with being reformed or at least being a Calvinist since the remonstrants were contra Calvinism. Uh, the tulip acrostic, the T-U-L-I-P. Uh, it might not be the best 
but it's a nice rule of thumb helps you remember. So these these are the five teachings of the tulip. They are based upon the findings. And you can read those are worth reading. There's a lot more to it than just a one-sentence description of the tulip. But the tulip is a meant to be a kind of a uh, coalescing, a summary. You got to have a way of condensing a little bit. So here's what the, the and five, there are five because the, they're in response to, to the, the, five, the articles. five articles of remonstrance. Exactly yeah. so. So the first one is the doctrine of total depravity. It starts there. That's not where the remonstrance started, but there's a logic to starting here. Uh, <clears throat> Total total depravity, uh, a logic for us to start there. Uh, it was it's understood that all the all five of these doctrines in the tulip are really just implications of the five solas, the sole that we already talked about. They're just defending that doctrine against encroachment, but getting into some more detail. So total depravity, as we've already indicated, has to do with every person being tainted by sin in every aspect of his humanity. And that includes, that includes his nature and his will and, and his mind. So the, the, the totally depraved sinner is unable to do good. He's not even able, according to the teaching in Romans, to want to do good, yeah. to, to want the will of God. Let me just interrupt to say some people have rejected the doctrine of total depravity because they've wrongly understood it to mean that it teaches that a person is as evil as he or she can be, that they never do anything meritorious or commendable. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about total depravity at all. We mean that there isn't a part of a person that hasn't been touched by sin, stained by sin and touched by the curse. That's what the, the total and the depravity is talking yes, about. Yes, yes. So that is, as you can see immediately, is uh, an implication of sola gratia. The reason grace alone is necessary, if you've got a totally depraved sinner, he's incapable of earning anything. He's incapable of meriting anything. He's incapable of improving so what else is going to save him but God being gracious with a free gift? I think that word incapable is helpful at summarizing what it is we're talking about when we say totally depraved. Those who are in the flesh, Romans 8, cannot please God. They are incapable of pleasing God because, Ephesians 2, 1, they are dead in their trespasses and yes. sins. Total inability is a yeah. way that it's been sometimes uh, labeled. Yeah. But that doesn't spell tulip if you do that. So, <laughs> well, the total is The total, a T-still. Yeah, I guess sure. it could spell. Yeah, that's right. Good point. So, okay, so uh, the Canons of Dort articulated a doctrine of total depravity uh, that requires grace or else all is lost. Um, and then the, the, the Canons next articulate uh, an unconditional election. That's a direct refuting of the Articles of Remonstrance that taught a conditional election. And what this means is uh, there are no there are no preconditions possible for a totally depraved person. If God were looking for conditions, he couldn't find any if they were preconditions. And 
God is not looking through the corridors of time to see what people will do. He's dealing with people who cannot do. If God looked through the corridors yes, of time that's right. without acting, all he could see, all he would would see is are, sin, depraved right. sinners. People who never choose him because they cannot choose from that's him. That's right. Yeah. So God, God having to go first has to mean if God's going to so-called look through the corridors of time, the first thing he's going to see is himself doing something. Yeah. Uh, He's not looking for foreseen faith. And, and that, that goes back to our sola fide. If we didn't say it before, it needs to be reiterated. Faith as an instrument that lays hold of God's gracious salvation is not the same thing at all as faith being a quality that God is looking for, especially if it's a quality that is a substitute for righteousness, which is how it's been said sometimes. You know, God's looking at unrighteous people he demands perfect righteousness. He finds none, and then he says, "Okay, I'll I'll grade on the curve. I'll bend the rules. I'll I'll accept faith instead of righteousness because faith's easier." Like, no, God doesn't accept anything instead of righteousness, and no, for totally depraved people, faith isn't any easier than righteousness. That's right. They're all impossible. Yeah. Um. So. Uh, Unconditional election was the affirmation that God isn't looking for anything in people. He's giving something to people. And that's why I say this this is an implication both of total depravity and it's an implication of our our first uh, of the solas of of grace alone. It, It couldn't be any other way. Because God's not looking for something. He already knows what he's going to find if he goes looking. God is giving something. Amen. So, um, get excited about that. Yeah. It's worth he, getting excited he over. He gave it to me. That's right. Um, so, the third uh, in the tulip acrostic is the, U, is the L for limited atonement. Now, that's a very unfortunate turn of phrase because it immediately sounds wrong you're talking about god you're talking about jesus you're talking about god can do anything why do you want to call something limited but what the limited means is well, first that, off it's it's got to be put in its context as a response to unlimited that's atonement. fair Un, it, it is in response to unlimited atonement which was a clever turn of phrase for them yeah <clears throat> but here's here's the right way to phrase it and to understand the teaching that's behind it. Limited atonement means efficacious or effectual redemption. It means an atonement that works. That's what you're saying when you say that the limited atonement of Christ is that Christ's death on the cross actually does something. It actually accomplishes something. And that would be over against a death on the cross that merely makes something possible. Yes, for the Arminians, you must conclude that there will be people eternally in the lake of fire for whom Christ died. That's right. And thereby, for whom Christ's death was not enough. It was not sufficient. And that's the problem. The unlimited atonement idea results in an insufficient redemption, an insufficient atonement. It can't overcome the willfulness of the sinners who reject it. It's not trying to do that. The limited atonement is 
God's move to actually take away sins. So if Christ's death works, then of necessity it is limited in its scope because we know from the Bible, from lots and lots and lots of places in the Bible, that at the end of the day, everyone will not be saved. We already know that as a stake in the ground. There will be people in heaven and there will be people in hell. Everybody is not going to be saved. So to say that Christ died for everybody, but some are not saved, is to say that his death was not effectual. You could say it was good and you could say it was big and you could say a lot of things about it, but it didn't work for them. And so... These canons were trying to say that the redemption that is in Christ's blood is effectual. It works. So, therefore, it is obviously limited in its scope to the true believers. Yeah, another way this has been articulated is as a particular atonement instead yes. of a limited atonement. But but two-pip doesn't roll off the tongue like two No, lipids. No, that's exactly right. But particular <laughs> is a better... Uh, is a better uh, term. You mentioned earlier uh, uh, teaching a man who was a free will Baptist. The counterpart to them, there were some folks called the particular, particular. Baptists. That's right. And that's the point of particularity right there. Yeah, general Baptists were also a group that was more like the free will Baptist, general Baptists as over against particular Baptists, which had to do with your view of the atonement. Was it a general, yeah. uh, an unlimited atonement, or was it a particular atonement? Yes. Particular redemption is a good phrase, limited atonement. But the positive way of saying that is that Christ's death works. Yes. It actually works. There'll be nobody for whom Christ shed his blood who doesn't have his sins forgiven when all is said and done. And isn't that what the angel says? Why should you call his name Jesus? Because he will save his people from their sins. That's right. Hallelujah to that. That's exactly right. He will save his people from their sins by shedding his precious blood on the cross. And his blood will atone for every single one of them. It can't fail to. Yeah, that's right. So we're really, we're elevating soli deo gloria, right? Yeah, we're elevating yeah. sola gratia by defending this doctrine. It's God gets all the glory for that because he alone saves. Yeah, and he, and he saves the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, Paul exactly. says in Ephesians chapter 5. Yes, yes, that is exactly right. So that's three of the four of the five in the tulip. Next is is the eye of irresistible grace. And that that uh, goes against the implications of depravity, which is really, though they called it in the remonstrance articles, total depravity, it's really not Total. It's really qualified depravity because of the prevenient grace idea that God goes in their uh, in their understanding. God goes forward with he goes first with this version of grace that just puts you in a position to decide to choose God's grace or not. But irresistible grace means that when God is, decides to be gracious to you, nobody can stop him from being gracious to you, not even you. That's right. And so it's irresistible. Only an idiot would want to resist the grace of God. Turns out totally depraved people are idiots, the Bible says. <laughs> and so if a man or a woman could resist the grace of God, 
As a sinner, he would. That's just how depraved we are. So if grace isn't irresistible, it's going to always be resisted. Yeah, and another way of looking at that is that when God goes first by his Holy Spirit and awakens you, he gives you the sense, the eyes to see how marvelous is his son, how marvelous this grace is. You wouldn't want to resist That's it right. even if you could. That's what makes it so irresistible. You know, again, opponents of irresistible grace have caricaturized this doctrine as though God drags people into the kingdom. Yeah, kicking, kicking and, and screaming. screaming. <laughs> when nothing could be further from the truth, only the sinful, sin-addled fool would want to be drawn toward God, kicking and screaming. But when God, uh, well, to use the language of the apostle, when he causes us no longer to be blind, when he causes the scales to fall from our eyes, and we see him when we begin, rather, to see him for who he is, and this grace for what it is, and his son for who he is. Now, that's why the grace is, is irresistible, because... We find, oh, he's who I've always wanted. Oh, that's right. And you know, you're, we're touching on an, a deeper mystery, which we don't want to. I don't want to chase a rabbit trail, but th- that's exactly what this podcast is well, for. Well, that's true. Well, then let me go for it. <laughs> so the the idea, uh, this idea of irresistible grace, goes over against the notions of free will that uh, are premised on those articles of remonstrance, those Arminian articles, um, but. There's such a misunderstanding about the what a human will is. And we covered this a little bit in one of our podcasts. But it turns out that a will, a person's will, is entirely constrained by his nature. That's true of God. God is who he is, and he wills that which is consistent with his own nature, and he can do no other. That's why the Bible says... God can't lie. Well, it's not in his nature to be untruthful. God is truth. Uh, God can't be dark because God is light. And so he wills the good because he is good. So with us, as depraved sinners, our wills are bad. They're engaged and inclined toward the bad. God has to do a change of our nature to free up our will. And when he does that, when he goes first changes our nature now our will is free and we always choose god we always choose jesus Uh, no one ever says no once god has changed his nature because now he's seeing correctly yes and his will is able to do that so uh that was was free but uh (laughs) uh, so the last uh, letter in the tulip acrostic is uh the p for perseverance of the saints, the perseverance of the saints. I like it better. Some have suggested we ought to call it the preservation of the saints. And or the I think, perseverance of Christ, I've heard people say, or the perseverance of the Spirit. Yeah, 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 I've heard those as well. But perseverance of the saints, uh, it's another implication of sola gratia, grace, grace alone. It's just that once someone has begun in this grace of salvation, God will see to it that they surely finish. They won't fall away. They won't lose their salvation. They can't because the salvation is the gift of God. The Bible says if God has already given his son to us, 
how will he not also with him freely give us all things? How could God fail to give us the rest, having already given us Christ on the cross? God can't fail to follow through. We can't thwart him. And so we, the true believer will persevere to the end. Now, that's not us denying anything in the Bible about the necessity of perseverance. Everything that God gives us as a gift has a commensurate duty aspect to it. And we understand that. And we could maybe do a podcast on that sometime too. Of course, we have a duty to believe. Yes, we have a duty to believe, but God's going to keep us in the faith. And we have a duty, uh, you know, to persevere. Yes, but God's going to preserve us so that we do persevere. Yeah, it's, it's informed by Augustine's little couplet, command what you will and will what you command. He yes. he causes us to walk in his statutes and obey his commandments, as was said yes. even better by the prophet about the new covenant. Yes, yes. So back to our original question, what what is Reformed theology? Is that what we asked a long time uh, a ago? A long time A couple ago. hours so, ago, anyway. It, it means everything we've said here and more, but <laughs> but it, usually in, in the circles that we run in at Christ Memorial Church, when somebody says he's Reformed or he's a Calvinist, they mean about the same thing, and they usually mean that he's a, a five-point Calvinist, a tulip Calvinist, that holds to this Reformed understanding of the Bible's teaching on salvation, that we we believe the Bible teaches that men and women really are totally depraved and they need God to go to go from first to last and that that God is the one who of necessity chose us out of the mass of humanity for no reason other than his free choice no condition in us we were not better than anybody else he just chose us and we don't know who they are the who the chosen are so we preach the gospel to everybody that's one of the implications some have argued that that's that if if you believe in this uh, Calvinism, you can't preach the gospel to everybody. So of course you can. God says you must. And in fact, turns out preaching the gospel to everybody is how God's going to call the elect home. Turns that's out right. that's his chosen methodology. Yeah, because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. That's right. So we believe in a an effectual redemption, a limited atonement that which by which we mean it always works, it never fails to work. And and we believe in irresistible grace, uh, which is that when God starts saving somebody, he overcomes every obstacle and saves that person. And perseverance, we believe the Bible teaches that when God saves a person, he keeps a person. Jesus says, they're in my Father's hand and nobody can snatch them out. And we believe that means you can't jump out either. Yeah. Um, so that's that's kind of how we're answering the question. You know, just a couple of a couple of thoughts about drawing lines uh, and and uh, uh, accepting labels. I've heard people say, yeah, well, I'm not a disciple of John Calvin. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I want to say, well, so am I. I'm a disciple. I'm not a disciple of John Calvin. I'm a follower of Jesus. I, I'm willing to call myself a Calvinist because I think that what's called Calvinist soteriology. And soteriology is a word that pertains to the study of salvation. So yeah. when we say soteriology, we're talking about things that pertain to salvation. Yeah, and we believe that that the the teaching of the Bible on how a person is saved is, is nicely summed up in a Calvinist framework. And yeah. that's why we say a person would say he's a Calvinist. Uh, you know, um, we're a Baptist church and we're Calvinist. Calvin is the father of Presbyterianism, but that's not what we're talking about. Yeah. We're talking about a doctrine of salvation. And, and 
and, and when somebody takes a label like this, you might ask, well, is, are there people who are lost, who are Calvinists, or who are Reformed? And the answer is yes. Uh, people are not, are not saved because of the label that they take on. There is such a thing as cold orthodoxy. There are, there are people in the world who can articulate every doctrine that's true correctly, but they don't believe it from the heart. Their eyes aren't open. They're not relying on Jesus. They remain in their sins. The, the, the movement from lost to saved is a movement of running to Jesus and relying on his finished work and receiving his gifts so that you're born again and you turn from sin and you're filled with the Holy Spirit and all that. So, yeah, there are people who can intellectually claim to believe this or that set of doctrines who aren't saved people. So we're not equating Calvinism with salvation. We're just saying that a Calvinist understanding of the salvation process, we believe, is a biblical one. Uh, and, and the same thing has to be acknowledged in reverse. You know, are there people who are Arminians, who are, who are, who are truly saved people? It sounds like they're getting things wrong. And, and I want to answer that. Obviously, the first answer I want to give was, well, of course there are. Uh, but I want to I want to say that it does depend. We have to be willing to say it depends a little bit because you can't be saved by a false gospel. So you have to get the gospel right. Well, how right do you have to get it? Well, I think we have strong biblical warrant to say that if you're thinking you're saved because you're holding on to Christ plus some other merits. Or you could end the sentence, if you think you're saved because you're holding on to Christ plus. Fill in the blank. Yeah, yeah, Christ plus anything. Christ plus anything, then we're going to say no, then you're not saved. No one is saved by Christ plus anything. Um, and I'm, I'm going to say, and this might seem controversial, but that nobody is saved who is holding on to the notion that God saved me because of something that he saw in me that made him pick me as over against someone else. If I don't clearly understand that I am one out of many, I am e pluribus unum <laughs> amongst the sinners of this world, and there's nothing special about me that resulted in God saving me. If I don't see that clearly, I don't think I've come to faith in Christ yet. I think I have to know my utter lost condition and having nothing to commend myself, no condition. We're not saying you can't be saved and believe wrong things. What we're saying is those who would affirm these things we're talking about, thereby reveal they haven't truly believed the gospel. We're That's talking about I'm people saying. who would affirm it's Christ plus other merits, or it's, or it's God saving me because I had something savable about me. Yes. Yes, that's what that's what I'm uh, yeah. that's what I'm advocating. And and really I think that nobody is saved who thinks that he found God on his own, who doesn't understand that God's the one that found him, that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And if 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 a person thinks he was so noble-minded that he engaged his whole life to find God and finally did, I think he's still misunderstanding his own lost condition and the salvation of Christ. So, you know, I I I think I just want to say all we're trying to talk about with these labels is being Bible-believing Christians who take what the Bible teaches about sin and, and our depravity and about the 
glory of our Savior and the sovereignty of God, who take all those things seriously, who take the Bible's teaching on faith seriously, and who labor to understand it and how these things work together. That's that's what we're that's what we're after in taking these labels onto ourselves. Well, Craig, I think this podcast will serve as a helpful starting place to answering the question, what is Reformed theology? Here at Christ Memorial Church, we are people who uh, whose Bible teaching and Bible preaching puts us in the camp of those who belong to Reformed theology, broadly being uh, Reformed Baptists. But, but the essence is, again, we believe these things because we believe this is what the Bible teaches. And this theology holds up it it holds up god it's a big god theology it's a sovereign god theology it's a glorious god theology and it's not a big man theology right and i think those things are essential and and really uh kind of force us into this doctrinal camp because uh you know ours is to teach and preach and believe what the bible says and this is what we believe the bible says amen well some books that we think could be helpful to you if you want to learn more so craig mentioned david wells's book reformed theology in america uh this is kind of a story of uh how american reformed theology came to be and of course it goes back to the goings-on in europe from the time of the protestant reformation and probably a little bit uh before that some popular books, uh, popular level books that talk about the things we've talked about in more detail. Uh, a book by John Piper simply called Five Points. All of Piper's books are available as free downloads at DesiringGod.org. Um, a book I read a few years ago by a fellow named Richard D. Phillips mm. asks the question, what's so great about the doctrines of grace? Mm. And the doctrines of grace is another way of uh, referring to um, these five points of Calvinism, the tulip acrostic that we talked about today. So what's so great about the doctrines of grace by Richard Phillips, uh, another book by Piper that gets into these things. Does God desire all to be saved? Uh, again, available as a free download. And then part two of RC Sproul's book. And let me pull up the name of this book here. It's on my list. RC Sproul wrote a, wrote a book called what is reformed Theology. Now, he's writing from the perspective of a Presbyterian, so in part one, he's talking more about things that pertain to that, but in part two of that book, he's talking about the things that we talked about today, namely uh, these five points. And so I, I would encourage people um, to have as kind of a helpful uh, encapsulation of Reformed theology, these five sole, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scriptures alone, the glory of God alone, and then this TULIP acronym. acronym. Yes. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the Spirit, causing the perseverance of the saints. Many thanks to John Pastor, who's the editor of From Dan to Beersheba. If you want to learn more about Christ Memorial Church, where Craig and I serve on the pastoral staff, you can find out more at cmcvermont.org. For Craig, I'm Mitch. Grace and peace to you.